0: I'm doing that right now.
1: Thank you so much. One second, add that a pin? Okay, uh, hello friends. Thank you so much for joining us for another exciting Hadura member shiur. Today is the sixth installment of an eight-part series on the Halakhot of Kashrut by Rabbi Yonatan Halevi. Today, we are diving into the Halakhot of Halavi Israel. As usual, all our classes are recorded and available on our website regarding questions and comments. Unless you have something really pressing, please write your questions in the chat box or simply remember them till the end when we will have time for questions. Uh, the sources have been sent out on our members' Discord and WhatsApp and will be posted here in the chat box as well. Uh, with that said, thank you so much, everyone, for joining. And Chacham, it is always a privilege to have you with us, and the floor is yours.
2: Thank you so much, Oad, and thank you to everyone for being here today, especially with the time change. I truly appreciate that. Uh, That's my fault and not the Chaburah's fault. I had to reschedule my day, and I didn't want to cancel today's class. Chalab Yisrael. This is the exciting topic of today's shi'u. Exciting because for many people, this is a very hot topic. What is Chanukah Israel? Do we keep Chanukah Israel? What do we need to know about Chanukah Israel? And perhaps I might start off somewhere a little different, and that is in a less traditional place. There was a famous Nazi propagandist, Yemach mm-hmm. Shemov Bezichol. His name should be erased and blotted out. Joseph Goebbels. I think I'm saying his last
0: name correctly, and if not, I don't care. And Joseph Goebbels said. That he who wins the language wins the war.
2: That in order to win a war, you don't really have to win the war. You don't have to be right. You just have to know how to present your idea in a way that the language makes you already victorious. I think about some things and politics that I might think of, and though I don't speak about politics ever, not in public and not in private, I don't involve myself, but as a rabbi who watches people debate my religion, without any knowledge of it, you think in the realm of abortions, for abortions, against abortions, you hear these words. Nobody says I'm for an abortion, I'm against abortions. They use words like pro-life or pro-choice. Which kind of fool doesn't want to be pro-choice, want to take away my choice? Or which kind of fool doesn't believe in life, you want to get rid of life? And so instead of dealing with the issue at hand, we create a word, that you can't argue with anymore. And the same thing is true here with Chalav Yisrael. The title of today's She'ul was actually propaganda. And that is that we don't have this term of Chalav Yisrael in traditional rabbinic literature. Chalav Yisrael is a term that we use today. And I would say that as we read through the sources, I want you to be on the lookout. Does the term Chalav Yisrael, until very much later in history, actually exist? And if it doesn't exist, so what exactly makes milk kashem or not kashem? And that brings me to today's shiul. We're on page one, source one. There are many sources I wish to go through with you today. And so like Ohad mentioned, if there's a question that stops you from being able to comprehend what's going forward, please feel free to interrupt me. If you just need a clarification of a point or you want to ask something, I will stick around here later. I moved the shoe earlier so that I don't have to skimp on the Q&A element of the shoe. So I will be here for you at the end of the shoe as well. Barak. The Mishnah masechet avu Now we've read this Mishnah a few times already, and every single time we've highlighted a different element of this Mishnah. <inaudible> These are the things of goyim that are forbidden to us, but they are not so forbidden
0: that we cannot derive benefit from them. (inaudible) Milk that was milked by
2: a (inaudible) non-Jew. And a Jewish person does not see this non-Jew milking the cow. This milk is prohibited to us, but it is not so prohibited to us that we cannot, for example, sell it or feed it to our animals or whatever else it would be considered a misu So here you find the first time in the Mishnah that we're referring to milk that is seemingly not kasher for a reason that has to do with non-Jews, and that is,
0: a non-Jew milks a cow, we are forbidden from drinking it so long as a Jew has not seen him milking the cow. Let's look at the gemara. And let's do it in English together. The Gama asks concerning milk, with regard to what need we be concerned,
2: why is the milk prohibited? If it is due to the concern that a Gentile might exchange the milk of a kosher animal with the milk of a non-kasher animal, this concern is unfounded. as kosher milk is white, whereas non-kasher milk has a green tinge to it, and therefore they're easily distinguishable. And if it is prohibited due to the concern that it might be mixed with non kosher milk, let the Jew curdle the milk obtained from the non Jew. the master said, Amar milk from a kasher animal curdles, the milk from a non kasher animal does not curdle. So here, Chachamir, are trying to figure out what exactly is the problem with chalav shechalab o goy, israel ro'evu? What is the problem with milk that a non Jew milk, and we didn't see him milk it? If you think that the milk is not kasher, meaning they're switching it out for us with give me a non kasher animal milk, pig's milk. Camel milk, I don't know what else. I mean, Today all kinds of things make milk that are not animals. So there's cashew milk and almond milk and of uh, pea milk, but uh, we're not referring to those milks. We're I mean, talking milk from animals, those that nurse their young. Uh, so here you have the first answer, which is if we're concerned that they might switch the milk for us, we can distinguish casher milk from non-casher milk based on the whiteness or the greenness of this milk. And if you're concerned that maybe there is non kasher milk mixed inside of the kasher milk, meaning you won't be able to tell them apart just by looking at them, so you should try to curdle it. Curdle it from making cheese. Why should you try to curdle it? Because our rabbis tell us that milk from a non kasher animal does not curdle. The milk from a kasher animal curdles. So there's cow's milk, there's sheep's milk, uh, there's cow's cheese, and there's goat cheese, and there's uh, sheep cheese. But you don't have camel cheese or kangaroo cheese or whatever other cheese. You might have a pig cheese. And because of that, all you have to do to test the milk to make sure you can drink it is see if it curdles. If it curdles, you know the milk is kasher. If it doesn't curdle, you know it's not kasher. The Gemayah answers, if one desires to eat it as cheese, indeed one can simply curdle it, as the milk of non-kasher animals do not curdle. What are we dealing with here? We are dealing with a case where one desires to use the milk as kamcha also known as kutach, a food item that contains milk. So here, we are trying to make another dairy food, but it doesn't have the
0: same rule, as that food can be made also with non-kasher milk. And the Gemma mentions in the next section why this is not a reliable method to check if this milk is kasher. And that leads us to the discussion of whether this scientific reality that Chachamim mentioned to
2: us, that milk curdles or doesn't curdle based on whether it's kasher milk or non-kasher milk. Now, oftentimes when Chachamim makes a claim like that, we might be very quick to dismiss it. Like, okay, the rabbis were telling us something that we today know there's this kind of cheese and that kind of cheese. And it can't be that only kasher milk curdles. So I brought you here in Source 3, an essay. It was written by a certain Aviad Bidenstock, I don't know who he is, but he quoted research from barilan University, and I could not find the original article, so I instead quoted his source of the original article. In Universidad barilan so barilan University, together with the Laboratory for Milk Studies in Israel, they joined together to do research on this sentence of our rabbis. And
0: they made two different ways to test milk. They're described in source three, the bottom left of page one. The first method they used is they took milk from kosher animals and non-kosher animals. And what they did was they
2: added the enzyme rennet. Uh, You know, rennet is what they used to make cheese, the traditional method of using cheese, to see whether this milk would turn into cheese or not. And the second, they used something called an optograph. Now, I'm not a food scientist nor any type of scientist. And this is able to now check very quickly the strength of the, from what I understand, the strength of the curdle, meaning how well this milk has turned into cheese. The results on page two at the top right came out as follows, that milk from cows, goats, sheep, and all kinds of animals like deer and different type, antelope, different animals like that, all of those things. All of them turned into cheese. On the contrary, though, those that came from non kashar animals, so such as a horse, an alpaca, um, a dog, a pig, and mother's milk, none of those milks were able to curdle and turn into cheese. And therefore, you see that Chachamin were correct in their assumption, or their assertion, that milk that is kasher, is able to be turned into cheese, and milk that is not kasher is not able to be turned into cheese. Now, could there be methods today in which people are turning something into a cheese-like substance? Absolutely. When Chachamim are talking, though, about cheese, they refer to this method of checking whether to take rennet, add it to the milk, see if it turns into cheese. And if it does, you don't have to concern yourself anymore whether this milk is kasher or
0: not, and then you would be able to consume this milk. In source 4, the Me'iri suggests that perhaps the seller is mixing kasher milk and non-kasher milk
2: in order to get some kind of advantage of the non-kasher milk is cheap, and he's adding it to the kasher milk to make sure he tricks you. It's like anything else. Uh, in the olden days, in Ashkenaz, for example, they were concerned with buying sugar for Pesach. The reason they were concerned, because the merchants who sold the sugar, sugar was very expensive, Flour was very cheap. When you mix white sugar with white flour all together, you can't really tell the difference between them. And they would uh, sell the sugar by weight. And so they would trick you. You would think you're buying a cup of sugar. You're really buying three quarters of a cup of sugar and a quarter cup flour. And that is why they were concerned about hametz. Dashkanazim were concerned about using sugar on Pesach. They had one solution. If you boil your sugar before Pesach, then it's okay to use it on Pesach. You have to think it to yourself. Uh, Boiled flour is better for Pesach than not boiled flour? To the contrary, the flour is fine until you boil it. Once you boil it, now it becomes chamit. But what were they trying to do? They would get this dough that would boil to the top, they would skim it off, and they would keep the sugar water as their sugar for Pesach, which then should tell you that if you're able to remove flour from sugar by boiling it and just skimming it off the top and using that liquid, then all the things that you know about chametz not being allowed to come in contact with food, and that's why you have to be so careful by food production, in that case, uh, the halachot are clearly, they don't match up to what people used to do, but I'm not in a Pesach class right now, I'm in the class of uh, halav Israel. So, maybe explains that we're concerned, one, with mixing milk into there, and also we're concerned of the tzichtuche the the leftovers of milk that might be inside of the container or inside the utensil or maybe on the surface of a cheese
0: or whatever else it might be. And the media mentions that these are other reasons why we might be concerned with the milk that an non milk. In source five, we have Jakob Peretz, explains
2: that there are really two questions that the one question that surrounds Two different stances that surround the question of whether milk, that non-Jew milk, is kasher for us or not, And these are terms that we use in Harakha. Is it something that is ne'esar b'minyan, or lo ne'esar b'minyan? Meaning, are these things that are a blanket rabbinic prohibition? No matter whether we can check if the milk is kasher or not kasher. Our rabbis prohibited any milk that a non milk and a Jew didn't see it, it's not able to be consumed. Or is this davar shalom ne'esar b'minyan? This is something that is not a blanket prohibition, and there are ways around it, if you are able to check whether this milk is kasher or not. The Vashon Asa would refer to really, is this a decree of our court? Or is this something that is, is a... Chalim are telling you, look out for this, but if you look out for it, then it's fine. So this Machaloket is, is a many-way Machaloket. i right in source 5. chalav the reason for non kosher chalav being prohibited, and its reason, if you live in a place that has no non-kosher
0: animals, you live in an Arab country, they don't eat pigs, they don't milk camels, and we'll read about milking camels we'll later.
2: The milk that's in the market is only from cows and sheep and goats. Is the milk from goyim still prohibited? Meaning, is this a matter of kashrut, that I have to make sure my milk is kasher milk? Am I prohibiting this milk at a blanket level? doesn't make a difference if you could prove to me this is cow's milk. So long as it came from a non-Jew, you can't drink it. Or is this something, which is, if I could tell you there's no non-Jewish animals, uh, no kosher no animals around, the non-Jew milk, the milk, but it came certainly from a cow, would that milk be kasher or not? The opinion that this is able to be circumvented by ascertaining whether this milk is kasher or not is the opinion of the Rambam, the Rashba, the Smag, the Tshubat the, the Ramban, the Ridba, the Rivash, the Rashbat, the Peri Chadas, the Peri To'af, and many, many other poskid. All of them understand that this prohibition against non-Jewish milk has ways around it. If you can ascertain that this milk is kasher, and we're going to mention different ways in which you can do that, then this milk is fine to consume. But there are other that so long as the non-Jew milk the cow, it doesn't make a difference. You can prove to me now that it's cow's milk. You take it to a laboratory, or you tell me that all the animals in the world are kashe, or you tell me that it's more expensive to milk a camel than it is to milk a cow. It doesn't matter to me. What matters to me is the non-Jew touch the cow. That makes the milk not kashe. And I would argue that when we hear the term Chalav Yisrael in the Jewish community today, that they're all coming from the second camp of rabbis, which is this milk is not allowed to be consumed, no matter what you tell me. And those who consume milk that is not Chalav Yisrael, and I'm saying that in a way that I'll explain later, that milk is really kasher milk. Yes, a non-Jew might have milked that milk, but for various reasons that we'll discuss in today's shi'ol, that milk has been determined to be fit for consumption because it does not fall into the prohibition of chalav milk that was milked by a non-Jew, and a Jew did not see him milk it. And if you look exclusively in the Mishnah Abu D'Azharah, in the source 6, Chachamim tell us, elu mutarin Baachilat. These foods are foods which are permissible for consumption.
0: Milk that a non-Jew milked, roehu, and a
2: Jewish person saw him milk the cow. So this is really the flip side of the other Mishnah that we read. Meaning, if I am standing there watching the non-Jew milk the
0: cow, then that milk is permissible for consumption. I'm now allowed to eat that milk. In source seven, writes something fascinating, and he says, "Tema deha tani b'matriti." We learn in the Mishnah, that a Jew has to see the milking process.
2: "Mashma kol asu," that if the Jew wasn't supervising every single second of the milking, then the milk would be not kasher. rather, you should say, he says the Tosafot. The Jew doesn't actually have to see the milking be done. All that needs to happen is that you could see the non-Jew milking the cow if you wanted to. Let's try to understand what's going on here. We are concerned with this milk being milked by a non-Jew, because maybe they're going to mix non kasher milk into our milk. They're going to go milk a pig instead of a cow. So the most ideal way to figure that out is to watch, maybe you should milk a cow, but you don't own a farm. So you have to go to the dairy farm to buy yourself milk. So what do you do? You look at the non-Jew while he's milking to make sure he's milking a cow and he brings it to me. Tosafot says, you don't have to see the milking. You
0: just have to be able to see the milking. We're going to discuss certain circumstances that might be like that in just a moment. The Chai says, That Harav, Harav Peretz, who is uh, one of the uh, Rishonim,
2: he writes that even if you could see that there's no not-kasher animals in his whole barn, it's just cows, you still have to watch him because maybe he mixed some non-kasher milk there before he started milking the cow. And so that leads me to want to see what does the Rambam say? When we look at this harakot. what does the Rambam
0: write? Shalom Rambam says in source, page 3. Chalav be'imat yime'ah. Non kashar milk. Notice he doesn't say chalav Israel and non chalav
2: Israel. Milk that comes from a non kashar animal. A nikpah v'omet
0: ke chalav It doesn't become cheese like kashel milk does. And therefore, if they're mixed together and you put rennet inside, says the Rambam, the two will separate from each other.
2: Umipneizeh because of this, Suten hadim, the law says, that all milk that is now owned by a non-Jew asul is forbidden. Shema bo behematimah because maybe
0: they mixed inside of it non-kasher milk. And the cheese of non-Jews, which is next week's class, is permissible.
2: Because we know that non-Kasher milk cannot turn into cheese. And so because of that, if it's cheese, you know that the ingredients here are Kasher. But in the times of the Mishnah, our Chachamim
0: prohibited us from eating non-Jewish cheese. And we will talk all about this next week. I don't want to get into this now. In the left column, you give it. How can you give Somebody who eats cheese will go in. Or chalav
2: shechalavu, ben israel israelu ehu, or milk that was milked. No, he doesn't say chalav israel or chalav. What do they call now? Chalav stam. Chalav stam. They call
0: it.
2: Yeah. He doesn't say that Rambam. A Jewish person who drinks milk that a that a
0: non-Jew milk, but a Jew didn't see it happen. Makino to makad We beat him in the Bedin. Says the Rambam in Halacha Edva, Israel sheyashav בצד ha'eder של גוי. If the Jewish person is sitting on the side
2: of the of the um, herd of the non-Jew, the Halacha Goy the Chalav Min HaEder, and the non-Jew went and he brought him milk from these animals. Afalpi Shyes ba'eder BeHemat Temeah, even though there are non-kosher animals in his herd, Harei mutar, it is permissible. V'Afalpi Shalor Altocholei. Even though you didn't see him milk. Meaning he goes into his barn to milk the animal. You're sitting in the waiting room. There's a lobby in this uh, organic dairy farm. Cage-free pasture grazing grass-fed cows. You're sitting there in the waiting room. You brought your bucket to get it milked. And he says, listen, sit here in the air conditioning. I'm going into the mud uh, with my boots and I'll get you some milk. Now you see there are pigs over there. You see he has camels and alpacas. Maybe some llamas also. But says the Rambam, as long as you were sitting outside there, even though he brings you the bucket, you didn't see him milk the animal, the milk is kasher. Why? Because as long as you could stand up and see him milking if you wanted to, the non-Jew is afraid to go get your pig's milk because he knows you might stand up and see him and then he'll be busted, he'll get in trouble. And because of that, he's afraid to milk a non-kasher animal. Says the Rambam, that's reason enough for the milk to be kasher. So let me explain. The Mishnah says, milk that was milked by a non-Jew, and a Jew did not see it being milked.
0: This milk is forbidden for consumption. When you are sitting outside of the flock, you cannot see the milk being milked. Correct? So how does the
2: Rambam tell you, haray it's permissible to drink the milk. Here it's even worse. There are non-kashar animals there. Maybe you should be afraid he'll milk the non-kashar animals, says the Rambam. no. So long as you could stand up if you wanted to, this is what the Tosafot said. so long as you could stand up if you wanted to, the non-Jew is afraid, He's mitiareh, that you will see him mislead you, and because of that, says the Rambam, as long as you are able, if you wanted to, you don't have to see him. That is considered as if you saw him, and this milk is kasher. That's exactly what leads us to understand that for the Rambam, this is not a prohibition against milk that was milked by non-Jews. This is not a matter of chalav Israel versus chalav goyim. It has nothing to do with the Jew or the non-Jew, exactly. But it has everything to do with chalav Temea and chalav Tehorah. Is the milk kasher, or the milk is not kasher? Says the Rambam, So long as there's reason to know that he's afraid of you, because you might see him, you don't have to see him, as long as you might be able to see him, this milk is kasher. And the Rambam adds, and I I think Rabbi Sad Bordugo, who sent me the source in the morning, made the connection for me. I never wanted to make this connection, because it was slightly off topic. But once Rabbi Bitzhak told me to make this connection, I I accepted the, the truth from him. And so I quickly added to the source sheet, and about 10 minutes before the class, I told Ohad, please, take the source sheet and send out a new one. I need, I need a new one here. So this is the bottom of page three. If you don't see anything in the bottom of page three, you're likely using the old source sheet. So if you go to the shiviti.org forward slash chavura, you will see the new source sheet posted over there. In the 17th chapter of the Laws of forbidden foods, the Rambam writes, Why did they prohibit the vinegar, for example, of goyim?
0: Because they put inside of it, things that come from wine I don't want to deal with
2: muriyas right now but they normally put wine inside of this murias. but if the wine is more expensive than this muriyas, then it's permissible to drink that muriyas. wine any time tells tell you, you should be careful, because maybe the Goyim put inside of this food something that is not kasher. For example, they always tell you, you can't just buy something without a heksher. It has vinegar in it. Yes? Tell me, what is the prohibition of drinking vinegar? What is halakhically prohibited about apple cider vinegar? How about white vinegar that comes from potatoes? Or white vinegar that comes from corn. Or white vinegar that comes from grains. What is forbidden exactly about rice vinegar? There's nothing forbidden about those things. So what? There's balsamic vinegar, which comes from wine. There's white wine vinegar, red wine vinegar. Have you ever tried to buy white vinegar versus buying balsamic vinegar? I don't know how it is over there where you are, but where I live, a little container of balsamic vinegar that's kashev will cost you an arm and a leg. And that is maybe ten dollars, twenty dollars. The gallons of white vinegar, people white vinegar is so cheap. People wash their, I mean, I don't know why you like, it has to smell like vinegar. People clean things with vinegar, it's so cheap. These gallons of vinegar can cost you four or five dollars. Why on earth would someone choose to use superior quality vinegar for you and not tell you about it? And so here the Rambam says. Any time where we're afraid the goyim might mix something not kasher into our kasher food, you should know a rule. Nobody ever tricks you by giving you something more expensive for less money. This is going to lose. It's a business lesson. But people always trick you by mixing cheap things into expensive
0: things. In order to become wealthier you need to make money. So here you have to understand. The Rambam is telling you, every time Chachamim tell us that the goyim might
2: mix something into your food, you just have to ask yourself the question. What I'm afraid of them mixing into my food, is it cheaper or more expensive than that which I'm buying? And though Rambam doesn't mention this in the context of the laws of milk, but he tells you this is a general rule every time we're concerned. And why does the Rambam say we're concerned of milk that was milked by non-Jews? because we're afraid they might mix non-kosher milk into it. And therefore, this applies exactly to the case of the Rambam. So now, according to the Rambam, there are two ways to determine whether your milk is kasher, aside from watching it being One, if you are able to watch it, you milk if you wanted to. You don't have to. But if you would be able to stand up and see. Why? Because shek is he's afraid of you. In cases where the non-Jew is afraid to cheat you, then you don't have to be concerned about the milk. The second case, says the Ramban, is any time the milk that they would be mixing into your milk is more expensive than the milk that you're buying, then you don't have to be concerned. So I'll tell you, I read an article not so long ago at Costco. We have in the United States, Costco, I think also in the UK, there's Costco. And they decided a while ago to get into the camel milk industry. They want to bring camel milk to Costco. And uh, I I haven't seen yet camel's milk in my Costco. I check out almost every time that I'm there. So a few years ago, three years ago, maybe I read this article and they were talking about how difficult it is to milk a camel. Aside from physically how to milk a camel, but the camel produces maybe three liters of milk a day. Whereas the cow produces three liters of milk every single time you milk it every 10 minutes. The cow, I mean, especially today in the dairy industry, it's not so ethical. The cows are, are forced out milk. They pump out milk in ways that are not normal. But in any case, your dairy cow can give you vats and vats and vats of milk. And camel's milk is very expensive. So the average price of a bottle of camel's milk will be six, seven, eight, nine, ten times more expensive than your jug of cow's milk. And therefore, think about it this way. Why on earth would a non-Jew sell me higher-priced milk for the $2 that I pay for a milk? What do they get out of it? And because there's no logical reason for them to mix that milk in my milk, then there's nothing to worry about. But I really, I should stop the class here. We answered the question. We need to know the rabbis made a rule. The rule that a rabbi's made is the milk that was milked by a non-Jew and a Jew saw, didn't see him milk it, it's not kasher. But if a Jew saw him milk it, it's fine. And the Rambam says, even if he didn't see him, but he could see him, it's fine. And the Imam says, that even if he didn't see him, but there's no reason to assume you know for sure that the non-kasher milk is more expensive than the kasher milk, then all of your milk is fine. There is no blanket rabbinic gezerah here. There's no rule. This is just a matter of practicality. Be concerned with milk that comes from goyim because maybe they'll give you non-kasher milk. But in all these cases where you know that the milk is kasher, there's nothing to be concerned about. And the truth is, that's the image. This is the halakha. There's nothing more to say here. But I know how how this topic has Snowballed and it's become such a big deal in so many Jewish communities that I would be remiss if I didn't read these sources to you that are in the rest of the packet. And so with your
0: permission, I want to look at page four. I once had a rabbi who visited me. I
2: can tell you, it's okay. He's a Chabad rabbi. Now, I have a lot of respect for Chabad. I'm not a Chabadnik, but I appreciate you know, things that Chabad do for Am Yisrael. And uh, my rule is that if you want to criticize somebody, at least you should do what they do. Then you can criticize them. But they do a tremendous amount for Khalaf Israel around the world. Though I don't always agree with the means or the methods, but they don't answer up to me. So it doesn't matter. This uh, rabbi heard me give a shiur about Khalaf Israel. And he came to me with a subhanahu. He said, you don't know how to read subhanahu, he tells me. Black on white, according to your book, you have to keep Khalab Israel. And I sat with him, and I tried to explain to him and it didn't work. And I tried to explain to him, it didn't work. I tried to explain to him again, and it didn't work. At a certain point, I told him, Rabbi so-and-so, let me tell you how this works. And I'm sorry for the comparison. When a Christian missionary comes to me and tells me, this is what Isaiah 53 means. What I tell the Christian missionary is, how about you leave my books to me? Don't tell me what my books mean. I won't tell you what Matthew, Mark, Luke, and
0: John mean. Don't tell me what Isha'ia was said. I'm not going to tell you what Matthew said. That's it. When it comes to you and me, I'm not going to tell you what the Tanya
2: really means. And you please don't tell me what the shulhanahu really means. This is my rabbi. He's my rabbi's rabbi. He's my rabbi's rabbi's rabbi. We learned from him exactly how to read the shulhanahu. And it's okay that you discovered the shulhanahu. And now you want to make sure, hey, this is exactly, fine, good, wonderful. In your interpretation of shulhanahu, you can read whatever you want. But I'm not interpreting Shulchan Aruch. I'm reading the Shulchan Aruch. It was taught to us by all the Shulchan around the world as students of the Shulchan Aruch. So, like I said, just like I won't tell you exactly what the first Lubavitch Rebbe means and Sha'ar HaYichud about the emanation of God, and, of course. So then, you shouldn't please come to me and preach to me about what the Shulchan means. And on that note, let us read the Shulchan Aruch again. There's one halakha that is relevant for this week and two halachot that we will leave for next week because they have to do with the topic of cheese. Milk that was milked by a non-Jew. So Maran is copying and pasting here. And a, non, and a Jew didn't see him milk it. Because maybe he mixed into it non-kashem milk. If the non-Jew was milking in his house. What I mean in his house? It said somebody wants met a farmer. And he says to the farmer, the farmer, what are you going to do? There's a snowstorm tonight. How are you going to leave all your animals outside? He says, don't worry. I, I bring my donkey inside so he stays warm with us by the fire. He says, "And what's the donkey going to do? What, what are you guys going to do with the smell? He says, don't worry. The donkey will get used to the smell. So he was milking, not in his house, really. But in his barn, whatever it was, wherever he keeps the animals. And the Jew is sitting outside of the barn, so he does not see the milk. If he knows there's no non-Kashan animals in that barn, it's permissible to drink that milk. Even though the Jew cannot see the animal being milked when it's being milked. If there was a non-Kashan animal in his barn. So this guy raises not just cows and goats and sheep, but pigs and camels and alpacas and the Jew is sitting outside, and the non-Jew is milking for the Jew, even if you can't see him, you're sitting down, you can't see the guy, if when you stand up, you could
0: see him, then it would be mutar, even though you didn't stand up, as long as you could stand up, because he's afraid,
2: He's afraid maybe you'll stand up and see him. This is something interesting. The non-Jew has to know that you're not allowed to have pig's milk or camel's milk, but you're only allowed to drink kashrut milk.
0: So usually, in
2: situations of kashrut, we prefer the opposite. We have something called maslat. I want him not to know what I need, because if he knows what I need, he'll tell me what I want. Here is the opposite. I need him to know that I can't drink milk from a pig. So make sure it's only cow's milk. And even if you can't see him, but so long as there's potential to see him, this milk is kasher. What's the significance of these writings of Maran? The significance is that Maran agrees with all of the rabbis that this is a davar shelo ne'esar b'millad. This is not a blanket rule. Remember by the cooked foods of goyim, we said we're not allowed to eat their food because we might come to marry their children. He said, what about somebody who doesn't have children? Like a Catholic priest. Uh, our rabbis don't make a difference. It's a rule. A gezerah is a gezerah. There's no way to get around the gezerah. If that was the case by milk, then it doesn't make a difference. You can see him. You can't see him. You tested the milk. It's more expensive. It's less expensive. None of that would matter because there's a rule from our rabbis that you cannot drink this milk. But the moment that Al-Qamim tells us there are ways, if you could stand up, even if you didn't see him, then that means that milk that was milked by a non-Jew and a Jew didn't see him, it's not Kishan. Milk that was milked by a non-Jew, and a Jew saw him, the milk is kasher. We're adding now a next sentence. Milk that was milked by a non-Jew, and a Jew didn't see him, but he could have seen him if he wanted to. And that milk is kasher. This now tells us that this decree of Chachamim is not a decree. They're letting us know that this is something we have to be concerned with. The Ramah writes in the grave The Chachila, ideally, we have to make sure that he's there and looks into the bucket first to make sure there's no non kosher milk in the bucket. Okay, it's a And so We have to be careful to make sure that maybe we bring our own bucket. Let's not use his bucket because maybe there's some residue of the milk that he milks from his non kosher animals in that bucket. At the end of the day, though, if they already milk the milk, you don't have to worry about not the machinery, not the cups, not the bowls, not the buckets, nothing. It doesn't actually matter in the halakha. These are only ideal things. But when you come to purchase something in the grocery store, is that the chila or Now there's an article coming out in the Chaburah's uh, newest book that's coming. I, I wrote in there. The things that you buy in the store, it's not the chila. It's It already happened. They already milked the animal. You didn't check the bucket, so this is exactly the case. Where Ramah says you didn't check the bucket. Maybe there was non milk, It's fine. What about our, our maidservants? they milk the animals in the Jewish property? So long as your non-Jewish employees are milking it in your property, and you know that you only have kosher animals in your property, and there's nothing blocking your vision between them, you and the rest of your property, meaning there's not a non-Jewish neighborhood in between your barn and your house, it's on your property, even though you don't see your employees milking for you, it's okay, they're not Jewish, but they're allowed to milk for you because they're afraid. And because they, you know there's no non-kosher animals there, but if there's a non-Jewish house in between, no message, you have to make sure you can see them. Because you can even send your little daughter or son, a child, with the non-Jew to watch the milking. So long as they're afraid, the non-Jew is afraid, this milk is muta. I mean, Ramaz telling you, it doesn't have to be vision. You don't have to be able to see them. It could even be your child. I mean, anything that causes the non-Jew to be afraid of making a, a mistake, of mixing kasher milk with non-kasher milk, is enough to make this milk permissible for consumption. But this should now start in your mind, if you remember reading, that in places where there's government supervision and the non-Jews are afraid,
0: this is where these ideas are coming from. We're going to get there, but these are where these ideas are born. Okay, the next paragraph is Tumar. Let's skip it. Turn to, me to page 6. The Taz, Tureza have On the words of Maran, which says that as long as you can stand up and see him, the milk is fine, says
2: the Taz, It even works, meaning for sure that it works, if you enter and exit the barn. Meaning, you're not sitting out there the whole time, you're on your phone. You're wandering around in a place. But you keep coming and checking every once in a while, periodically, to see the milking. That's also fine, because he's afraid you might come to see him, even though you're not, meaning you don't have to sit outside that bar literally. But as long as you go in and
0: out, just spot check, that's fine. The shak, in source 2, he says the same thing, the tamahu, the reason, mishum the miratet, because he's afraid.
2: As long as you're entering in and
0: out, either the side of the barn or even into the barn, all of those things make this milk permissible. In source three, you find that the Tashbat, in the end of the Shalot of the Tashbat,
2: there was a book added there called Chut Amishulash. The Chut Mishulah seems to have been written by three major chachamim of the Sfaradim, and they write the following: mori achasid, My master and teacher of the Chasid. This is an early work of Sefaradic halacha. Shall you call him a Ramban? My Rabbi, he says. The Chut Mishulah. My Rabbi, who everything that he did was according to the Rambam's he drank milk with the goy milk. Even though a non-Jew, a Jew didn't see the non-Jew milking, so that he does this based off of the Rambam in our country. Because there's no reason to assume that they're going to mix the non-kasher milk with the kasher milk. And due to this, in our country, that camel's milk is more expensive than cow's milk and we don't concern ourselves that maybe they'll mix a superior milk and our inferior milk and that's why my rabbi who everything he did according
0: to the Rambam drank this milk I want to show you these sources because most people know that we drink milk
2: that is not chalab yisrael because of some heter of Rabbi Moshe Feinstein. And Moshe Feinstein, he decided. Now, the flip side of that is, I'm going to show you on the last page of this packet, that there's some kind of retraction of Rabbi Moshe Feinstein. And they, oh, see? Even you who are
0: following Rabbi Moshe Feinstein, you are wrong. And I'll tell you, when I say, Zot Torah Shazam, when I say, Torah
2: Moshe I say these sentences of Moshe, I refer to Moshe Rabbein, no disrespect to Moshe Feinstein, but whether Moshe Feinstein said or he retracted, my whole Torah is not dependent on the writings of Rabbi Moshe Feinstein, and so it's crucial for me to show you that we don't need those Tishuvot of later-day rabbis to permit this milk, and that
0: already in the generations after the Rambam, those who considered themselves to be his spiritual students were drinking milk from going. In source four, the Gashbash, Rajbash is a special sefar and There's a special touda for giyul that we use in my Bet for certain Jews who have to do a The nosach was written for us by the Rajbash. They asked the Rajbash a question. In the areas that are near us, we go and drink milk from these goyim who don't have non-kasha animals. Are we allowed to do that? The Rajbash is yes. And a long answer. He says yes. Because this, like we heard earlier, if there's no non-kashah animal, there's no reason to assume that they're going to put non-kashah milk, all of these things are fine. In source 5, Ben Who's Chaim He wrote a book on Ha'av Ha'av called T'li To'ah.
2: But he wrote many books. But so he, he is, is famous, very good. He's the rabbi of the Orachayim Kadosh, Of Ravichayim Chaim attar He is the Orachayim Kadosh. Uh, he is the Rabbi of Machida. Ravichayim was at David Azulay. Yes? So you're talking here, the circles of Sephardic Kabbalists now. You're not dealing with students necessarily of the Ramadan, if I have to speak kindly. Yes, they are. I'm Chaim Benatar writes Bim in our countries, Nira desha ridik not chalav migori. It seems permissible to buy milk from a non-Jew. The Jew didn't see him milk the animal. He's not standing next to his uh, herd. And this is true. Even if we know that there's non-kasher milk uh, animals in his farm. Because the non-kasher milk is more expensive and it's sold usually to upper class society, the kings, the princes, aristocracy. There's the, for sure they're not putting the more expensive milk in our cheap milk. But he says something interesting. But if a non-Jew gifts you milk from his farm, it's forbidden. Because every person who gives someone a gift wants to appease the one they're giving the gift to. And he likely would choose the more important of the milks to give you. So here you have to worry that maybe it's a gift. They want to do a. They want to give you a nicer milk. But if you're just buying the milk, there's no reason they would sell you camel's milk for the price of of cow's milk. That happened to me once when I was living in the old city near Yerushalayim. I used to go to certain grocery. Uh, Arab grocery. A few Arab groceries I used to go to. Why? Uh, because the Jews listen, everybody rips you off. The question is how much they can rip you off. Let's I didn't have the money to pay the Jewish tax to buy by the Jews. An example, a water bottle by the Arabs could cost you four or five shekels. In a Jewish store, 11 or 12 shekels. If it's cold in the refrigerator, 14 or 15 shekels. Five shekels. I simply don't have the, the, the need to lose that much money. So I used to go to this place, and this Arab man He had chalva. He made chalva, you know, from sesame seeds. And he made good chalva, and I like this chalva, and I would always ask, "What's in the chalva?" Tell me. Fine, we need this chalva. One time he said, "Yeah, Rabbi, I have a special chalva just for you." It's true story, I'm telling you that. I said, "What's the special about this chalva? This chalva it can cure cancer." I said, "Chalva can cure cancer? I'm unbelievable. This is something you should you should sell me the rights to this chalva, not just the chalva itself." I said, "How does this chalva cure cancer? This chalva has camel's milk inside of it. It's a healing qualities are known to." on and on about the camel's milk. Now, it could be. It could be he believed all these things about camel's milk. And the truth is that I'm glad he told me because that chalva is not kashev. Now, you see that he considered it something special for me. And likely, if this guy was going to give me a gift, I'd have to be careful because the gift he might give me would be from the more superior chalva and not from the cheaper chalva. This requires a person to have a brain. And this is something that is very difficult to ask for people to use their brains. Especially in a world where we're taught not to use our brains, and so that you have to know in every situation, not to rely on labels and symbols, to, to know how to ask the right questions.
0: I was once in a place. Uh, I have stories to tell you. So oh, later, source six. Haraperez writes based on this The
2: uh, based on what he said. Who hadin the the same would apply to the companies that make milk in the United States and in Europe and other such countries, meaning in civilized countries. I can't tell you. You're not traveling through a third world country. You're backpacking. Through, I don't know what the rules are over there. But you're in a normal civilized country with the federal department of agriculture. They check on things, and there's rule, there's law, there's order. In those countries, like America and Europe, you are allowed to buy the non-supervised milk
0: because they're under very strict uh, government supervision.
2: that These milks are completely permissible. And he mentions the Pri Chadash. Look at the Pri Chadash in source 7. For those of you who are in my uh, Shiviti UK class on Tuesdays, uh, that, uh, that this Chacham has a very unique history. We talked about him in the context of Shabtai Tzvi. He writes the same thing as the Pri that in a case where
0: we're not concerned with the non-Jews mixing it, this milk would be fine you raise your hand. Shalom alaykum Rav. Thank you. Um I like the I know the logic and it makes sense, but we do have an example.
2: For instance, in Europe there was an issue where uh horse meat was being sold as just cow meat throughout the EU. And there were regulations involved assuming that horse meat wouldn't be circulated into uh, department stores, but they were they were found uh All across the EU so I'm curious like how much can we really do we have cases where the big issues come about when um uh the processes aren't being followed properly if you know what I mean yeah let me answer quickly now and if not at the end of the class I'll elaborate on this more fraud is rampant everywhere just because fraud exists doesn't mean that fraud is the rule and the way you understand whether fraud is good or bad, how you understand it, look at the way they persecuted the people, I'm not familiar with that situation, but likely when they caught these people, look what they did to them it wasn't just like, ah, okay, don't do it again next time, Uh, the idea here is that it creates fear, whether or not listen, most people who break the law don't get caught, I would argue that a person uh, jaywalks or they speed on the highway they don't get caught, but why are they afraid to speed on the highway, because maybe they'll get caught and so for that reason, most people don't speed, some people do But this is enough of a reason for us. It's not that we're relying on the government. It's not that. The government is creating a fear that we're relying on. And we're going to discuss this soon in some of the more contemporary sources. And Robert, is the question for now? Thank you, you, Robert. (laughs) Well, in a way, I was going to answer the question by saying, if you watch the negative publicity that happened to that supermarket, as a result of that, there was tremendous negative publicity and the consequences for the supermarket were massive. So actually, I think it proves the point that when they were caught, they got themselves in such trouble that it's, it's a deterrent for other supermarkets to, to end up in the same thing. I mean, I, I don't think they did it on purpose. I think there was some negligence in, in some of their employees. That, that, is, that is exactly, that's, that's my, that's exactly correct. Let's look at the Chida. So you mentioned uh, the Pitoa, let's, let's do it in the Chida. The Chida writes from the Pichadash, what we already saw in the first paragraph, and he quotes the uh, Rav Beit David, and uh, a few others, that they really didn't like this, and they said some pretty miserable things about the pre-Chadas. And the Chida has a, uh, has a hard time with how they were able to speak that way about them, uh, and he says that this is really the custom of Algeria, and then on the top of page 8, he mentions there was a famous debate between the pre and the Maharas Ailon, A-lion, I don't know how to pronounce his name properly, he's a rabbi from London, was a rabbi in London, uh, I don't know if you've heard of him before, Rabbi Shemuel Ailon, Ailon. Uh, he was a rabbi of a Spanish community of mostly people who fled the Inquisition and came to London. And it's interesting that his fight with the Pichadash was how dare you be so lenient about milk. Because really the Maharaj spent most of his life being persecuted as a supporter of Shabtai And so though he was adamant that you had to be very particular about milk and that you could not rely on this false leniency of the pre is it's very fascinating that at the same time he had certain, or I'm not saying he had, I don't know, I, I can't, but he was accused by other of his generation to have Sabbathian tendencies. Now, it's true, the Bedin in London did make him uh, the, his opponents apologize, and they were excommunicated until they retracted their statements about his uh, messianic activities, yeah, but it's a very unique generation. There's a book from Rabbi Moshe Chagiz. Rabbi Moshe Chagiz uh, was the son of the famous Rabbi Jacob Chagiz that he wrote a few polemics against the Sabbateans. One of them is called Shever Posh'im, something like that it's called. And uh, that entire book is to fight these specific Chachameen who were accused of being Sabbateans in this generation, uh, which leads me to wonder, uh, tongue-in-cheek, if there is some type of connection between those who are very particular by milk and those who have all kinds of messianic tendencies. I don't know if that's the connection, but Hamilvin, uh, Yavin. And the uh, Chida just questions whether or not this story could have ever happened, because he's not sure that the Brichadash and the Maharash were ever in the same place at the same time. Maybe it happened through correspondence, or maybe the entire story is fabricated and it's not true. That leads me to page nine of my source sheet, because I really wish to deal with certain realities that existed in at least the uh, Sephardic countries that we're familiar with, and a few sources is not exhaustive. There are definitely thousands of more sources I could have collected but I wanted to pick from the places that were in front of me. Rabbi Nefei Laharon ben Shimon, by far one of my favorite of Chachami in the world. I wrote a book called Nahal uh, Mitzrayim. If you're familiar with Rabbi Shantor Gagin, they passed by each other. He, rabbi Shantor Gagin was a rabbi in Egypt at a certain point, if I recall correctly. And in the Bet Adin, after Rabbi Rafael Laharon ben Shimon,
0: I have a shoe about him, also in my UK playlist somewhere. And he writes as the chief rabbi in Egypt, was a special there was an Ashkenazi community in Egypt, and he
2: needed to make sure that they would have representation in the din. And so he made an Ashkenazi din and brought an Ashkenazi chief rabbi to Egypt. You have to understand, this is unheard of. His name was Abiyah Mendel HaKohen, and he would sign himself chief rabbi, chief Ashkenazi rabbi of Egypt. And at a certain point, Ashkenazim. Uh, who liked to fight with their hachamim. They made his life miserable, ended up firing him, and replaced him with some fancy-looking, uh, educated doctor who pretended to be a rabbi on the side. Uh, and Rabbi Rifei Lohan Bichimon was so sad that his friend, Nashkanazi, chief rabbi, who's much younger than him, was out of a job, that he brought him to sit as the third rabbi in his bet And so almost every Sephardic proclamation you're going to find coming out of Egypt in the bet of Rabbi Rifei has at the bottom also signed and I say it would be Mendel Hakohen. You wonder how it would be Aharon Mendel lived in Egypt? It's because the Sephardim were willing to take him in when Ashkenazim threw him
0: out. A very special personality. So he writes, In Egypt, in source 1 on
2: page 9, Hashem has solved the problem of milk that was milked by non-Jews. The non-Jews don't milk the milk in their property and then sell it in the market. They travel through the streets where they're heard. They stand in front of your courtyard. He says, you know, in some countries they deliver milk to your home. Here, they actually deliver the cow to your home. You bring out your bucket, they milk it for you into your bucket, and they keep walking to your next door neighbor. Why have to package and deliver? You can just deliver the cow, and that's what they used to do. That's what solved the problem. He mentions in Bet that in Mitzrayim, that's not relevant to me now, look in Zayim on the left side of page 9, Chalav <laughs> This is a fascinating In Egypt, there were two main streets, of the Jews and of the Kareks, who are also Jews. I have a shiur on my UK playlist about Kareim. It's very important to understand who the Kareim are. They're part of Am Mitzrayim. Yes, we may believe that they're mistaken in their understanding of the Torah, but biologically they are Jewish. Now, can we trust their kashrut or not? If a karai, a karite milks the cow, can we drink that milk? He says, If the karite will drink the milk, we'll drink it also. Because they also keep kasher in terms of milk. And so we're not concerned. If he'll drink from it, I mean, it's not just something he does for business. But if the karite will drink from that milk, we can drink from it also. In Source two, as a curiosity, I added this source, it's not a halakhic source, but he added as a curiosity that there's another reason why in Egypt you have to be careful not to drink milk from going that you didn't see if you milk. Know. Nothing to do with kashrut and everything to do with danger. He says that by the non Jews, they had a situation by the Arabs in Egypt. He heard rumors that when they get sick, they soak themselves in a milk bath and they let all of the sickness. Uh, go out into the milk. And then, when they're done with the milk bath, it's a very expensive bath. So what do they do? They gather all the milk in buckets, they bottle it, and they sell it for the cheapest price they carry all around town. And he says, it's very possible that they would sell you this milk because it's so cheap, and it would be dangerous just because it's come in contact with a diseased person, and that milk can be contaminated, and you could die from that. And that's why you shouldn't buy it. He writes at the end here, but I don't accept that, I don't, I'm not the source of this information, so don't hold me to it if I'm wrong. I'm only sharing with you what I've heard. You can go to Egypt yourself, look for yourself. And if you want to be careful, it's a good rumor to be careful about, and make sure you research the source of your milk to see that it's not some kind of uh, who knows COVID-contaminated milk or something like that. You want to make sure that this milk is able to be uh, consumed for health reasons as well. In Morocco and Algeria, the famous Chacham, Rabbi Uda Ayash. Rabbi Ayash wrote a number of books. and The book I'm quoting for is the Beti Yehuda. If you've ever met Algerian Jews, every ruling of Rabbi Uda Ayash is standard law by the Algerians. He came to Algeria and he standardized the Ketubot and he standardized the Gitim. And he, he standardized the entire bet He was a force that you could not reckon with fascinating works of Halakha and Mithagim. And then there he writes that in our places, eh, the custom is that we buy milk from Goyim. Everybody does that. There's no reason to be concerned, just like the Rashabash wrote. And he mentions that in the winter, we're careful not to drink their dairy beverages because they make this milk beverage, they boil in their pots and their pots are non-kashev. And because of that, we don't drink it. But don't think that that means we don't drink their milk. It just means we don't drink the milk that they boiled in their non-kashev pots. Rabbi Yosef Masas has three different places that I found in which he talks about. Could be there are other places, but these are the sources that are in front of me. I'd like to read to you at least the first teshuvah, just so you get a flavor of the sharpness of Rabbi Yosef Masas. He writes, Everyone's concerned with non-kashel milk. That's the reason. All the say, the reason we don't drink the milk is not because there's some supernatural that Jew needs to touch the cow. That's what makes the milk kasher. It all has to do with, is the milk kasher or is the milk not kasher? So chalav Yisrael or chalav goyim is a misnomer. It has nothing to do with a Jew or a non-Jew. Is it chalav kasher or chalav tame? That's what we need to know. Vim came therefore, ba chalav In a place where you don't find non-kasher milk, you don't have to prohibit it. But I'm going to tell you something now. Think about all the grocery stores you shop in, not just the Jewish ones. I want you to make for me tonight, soup. Cream of mushroom soup with pig's milk. Or with camel's milk. I'll settle for camel's milk
0: too. Uh, Llama milk also, I'll I'll be okay with. I just want to know which grocery store in your neighborhood you're going to go to, to buy that milk. You live in a reality where there is no non-kasher milk. It does not exist. I'm
2: not even sure that in a specialty store you can buy this milk. But even if it could, in the groceries where you go, nobody, there's no such thing. You live in the reality of non-kasher milk does not exist. We don't have camels in, in North Africa. Only the desert Arabs, they have camels. The, cows, the camel's milk is, is extra expensive. Kifle kifleim. I made a typo when I typed this up. It should say kifle, not kifche. Kifle kifleim. Al chalab be'imah Torah, kashor misabim Arabim besakim The Arabs tell us, when they're just chatting with us, how expensive camel's milk is. V'chalab chamorod v'susot, gamu e'no matri ha'itna klal afilu refuah, kashor shomim Arabim mastod. We also hear the Arabs chatter, meaning not intensely, They tell us that by the there's no such thing as donkey and horse milk around here. Because they believe, first of all, they know that there's, these animals are not so efficient at producing milk, and they're afraid that by milking them, they'll harm their babies. They have some kind of superstition not to milk these animals. They believe in a superstition that if they milk these animals, bad things will happen to them. He says you can tell the color of non-kashar milk is more green than that of the cow's milk. That you can tell even if you mix it, there's like strings, green strings. That even the lowest of the population of non-Jews, they don't like this milk. It doesn't taste good. It doesn't smell good. And that's why all of our early rabbis permitted milk of Goyim. He says, So we add another reason, That the government is very particular even not to mix water with the milk, let alone milk with the milk. And therefore there's no reason, That's all I have to answer. There's no reason to be particular here. In source 5, he writes, I received your letter. And I saw that you, a holy man, you gathered. All of the people who collected the worst of the stringencies together. You're trying to make this milk not kasher. No, my son. That all of
0: those
2: ideas that you brought in your book, that we cannot drink milk of goim. And more than those, we know all of those reasons. Don't tell me how to learn. I know all of the things that you're saying. We've been doing this forever. And then he writes that maybe you should, I should respond to your letter. And he says in bold, "So I don't have enough time in my life to spend wasting on idle matters like halavisa. I don't have time
0: for it." no reason for anyone to deal with this. And then in 6, he writes the same thing. And that brings me to
2: Yemen. Now Yemen, as you know, is a quite a conservative place in terms of halakha I didn't scour all of the writings of the Yemenite rabbis. I went instead to a contemporary Yemenite rabbi. I'm not from his Ben-Miglash. And he's not from the regular uh, Yemenite Rambam um, Ben-Miglash either. His name is Abis Hatir Do with him what you want. But he's recording here. He's Yemenite. Uh, uh, customs and what he knows from Yemen. And he writes in Source 7, that if in the city there's no non kashir milk, that harbe puskim, the opinion of many pashim we can buy that milk and that is the custom. And then he says here that that's also true regarding the milk companies of our generation. But what's special here is not this, look at Source 8. There are some who don't know that we permit this milk. They think that Yemenites don't drink milk from Goyim because my grandfather didn't drink milk from Goyim and my great-grandfather didn't drink milk from Goyim. That's true. Your grandparents in Yemen didn't refrain from drinking non-Jewish milk because of Halakha. Because in Yemenite culture, We simply don't drink dairy it's not a thing people don't pour themselves glasses of milk and drink them by the way uh, when uh, in the in israel there was a depression in the early years of the state of israel it was very common for sephardic families to sell their dairy like the milk they would get in rations from the government they would sell them to ashkenazi families and get instead meat or potatoes or rice because they didn't know what to do with so much milk cereal and milk oatmeal with milk coffee with milk, all of this milk consumption is not a very Sephardic thing, at least not from the Middle East. And it's interesting, by the way, we are the only adult animals in the world which consume dairy. It's something interesting to think about. And whether that's the right thing or not is another thing to think about. Maybe that's why the cashews and the almonds are busy nursing us instead. <speaking> in <Hebrew> yeah, there's no proof, therefore, he says, that you can't, that the Yemenites didn't drink milk from the it's not because of halakha, but rather it's because of the fact they didn't drink milk. said, even by the Tamidei khamim in Yemen, they permitted it. I asked, he said, and even in the city of Sana, which was where all the Torah was happening, we never heard anybody open their mouth and chirp against the Mihad, aside from some very small individuals who kept it to themselves, because that was not what was accepted in Yemen. Chacham <laughs> Morateliel, is one of my favorites of all I mean, in terms of his personality and his teachings and his stories. But when it comes to Khan, he comes from a very different camp. I'm going to say it like that. And Chacham <laughs> Morateliel quotes. There's a famous Tishuba of I don't know why I didn't quote here the, the volume number for you. I can. If you need the volume number, send it to me and I'll, I'll give it to you. In source nine, he quotes the Chadam <laughs> Sofer. Listen to how this works because it's the Nashvanazi logic here. The Chadam <laughs> Sofer says that milk that was milked by a non-Jew, is prohibited because of a minhag. The minhag is that all of the Ashkenazim accepted it upon themselves as a minhag. And because of that, it's already almost an issur O'gaitah. It's almost a biblical prohibition. And because it's almost a biblical prohibition, nobody in the world can undo a biblical prohibition. So very quickly, here's how this logic works. Um, a rabbinic, not a law, but a rabbinic requirement to check that the milk is Kashem became an Ashkenazi custom. And because it became an Ashkenazi custom,
0: it's now a biblical law. How does that logic work? That's all of Orthodox Judaism. That's how it always works. Something was written, and
2: the Ashkenazi community, they decided this is the only opinion in the world, and now we have to treat it like an Esau But with all due respect, I I have a hard time buying this. Uh, But you see in Source 10, the Daruch HaShul who's usually lenient in many areas of Halakha, is adamant that it is forbidden to rely on he calls him Eze Acheron, some rabbi. The the you're calling him some rabbi. Then he says some pretty miserable things I don't want to read to you about how the people will be punished for drinking milk that is not Chalab israel There's a book in source 11, I only saw him quoted elsewhere. There's a few Me'il Shemuel's. Likely, this is the Me'il Shemuel was an Ashkenazi rabbi. I think his last name was Rabbi Yudelovich or something like that. He lived in Yerushalayim. He says, even Bidi Avad, the milk is not good. But then he comes to the Chazon Ish, and Rabbi Moshe finds it. And both of them, everyone knows where Moshe about. I think very few people know that the Chazolish, who is usually very stringent in areas of Harakha, unreasonably stringent, he also agrees that, that in our situation, where the government has supervision over milk, that it's like those maidservants that the Raman mentioned, that are milking the cows for us, and they're afraid. That's why you can drink that milk. But uh, Moshe Feinstein also says that. And he says, I look at the bottom of Rabbi Moshe Feinstein in verse 13. And therefore, anyone who wants to be lenient. He has a very big, compelling reason to be lenient in this matter. is permitted, And that's why most observant Jews are lenient about this. And many rabbis, God forbid he should say, that they are in violation of Halakha nonetheless, this is always the, nonetheless, the nefesh. If you want, one day, go to safari, and put in this term ba'alei nefesh, and see all the places where this term ba'alei nefesh, people who care about their soul, meaning scrupulous individuals. Min it's not considered prohibited to be script, because you're showing off, it's not showing off, and that's my custom, says I'm strict to myself, and anybody who wants to be lenient, then you cannot consider him a person who is lenient in forbidden matters. So Moshe Feinstein says it's okay, there's a lot to rely on, even big rabbis do this, but if you want to be careful, be careful, but on account, don't be careful and treat other people who are lenient as if they're doing something wrong. My wife, her sister is married to the family of Moshe Feinstein. And uh, in the family, from what I heard, I, I'm not a source, but from what I heard, that Rebbe Moshe Feinstein, he kept Chalav Yisrael, then his wife didn't. But it was a certain, it was really something he did as an individual for himself. Now, if you look on page 18, and you'll read this after class, I won't have time to go through you today, I quoted an article. The article was titled, New Letter from Rebbe Moshe Feinstein of Israel Yisrael Appears. Now this here is a new letter, someone died, and they found this letter in his desk. And it's a saying of Moshe Feinstein really that really you shouldn't rely on my heter, only if you really need to. Okay, that's why I told you earlier in this class. It doesn't shake me if Rabbi Moshe Feinstein retracted, even if he fully said I was wrong. It wouldn't shake me because I'm the Ramban, the Rashbash, the Tashbesh, the Khut the Prithor, the Prithadad. I'm not sure what. What do I need also this? If we keep going on Source 14, Reb Mordechai Yaakov. Bryce, I don't know how to say his name, he was the rabbi of Zurich, he told a story that he saw that there was some lady and she was a, a, a maid and someone was home and she would bring the milk from a very far distance and someone asked her, how do you make the milk that it doesn't spoil? She said, oh, I take the milk and every few hours I milk some of my uh, my donkey into the bucket and it keeps my milk fresh. She oh, I don't want to learn the halakha from a non-Jewish maid but it's very important to take that into consideration when ruling halakha. You can do that information what you wish. And There are many anecdotal stories. I grew up hearing all kinds of stories. There's a place in New York, and they found out that they put pig fat on top of the milk to keep it cold. Da, da, da. Even if it's true, it's not true. But even if it was true, so what? That doesn't change the way we learn a halakha. But anecdotes seem to make people very excited. I only have about 10 more minutes, and I wanted to dedicate the end of my shi'u to one last section here. The extra reading, you'll do on your own. And this is where people become very worried. I've seen that it comes Pesach, all of a sudden we keep Chalav Ten days of Teshuvah, Chalav Certain times in their life, they're very afraid to follow uh, the Chalav here. And it seems to me that this has been because of some fear that by drinking milk or consuming dairy that is not Chalav Israel, which we've already said
0: that, that term is not a real term. It's either kasheh or not kasheh. And if it's not kasheh, even we can't drink it. And if it is kasheh, then Everybody can drink it. But they're afraid
2: that it's going to damage their soul. It's going to hurt their heart. It's going to make their connection with the Kaddosh Baruch Hu disappear. This is something that's peddled very aggressively by certain Jewish communities. And as I said before, as much as I respect Chabad and the work that they do, Chalav Yisrael is one of their 11 commandments. This is one of those things they teach and they speak about. And not for nothing, their rabbis believe very much that the milk that you consume directly influences your nishanah. And so because of that, though all the chassidim are scrupulous about this, because likely in the Jewish community, the most chassidim we interact with are likely from the Chabad community, no matter where you live, it's important to know what they say and why they say it, and why we're not concerned, even on a Kabbalistic level. Now, maybe you're not concerned on a Kabbalistic level at all, and that's also fine. But if you were concerned on a Kabbalistic level, I'm here to uh, assuage your fears and tell you, you don't have to be concerned, even on a Kabbalistic level. Let's look. Sources one and two are from the sixth and seventh Lubavitcher Rebbe's, respectively. And the sixth Lubavitcher Rebbe, Rabbi Yosef Yitzhak Schneerson, came over to New York. His son-in-law, Rabbi Menachem Mendel Schneerson, followed. As you know, there was much politics whether the seventh Rebbe should have been the Rebbe or not have been the Rebbe, and that led to all kinds of interesting history in Chabad. One day when we're not on camera and you want to learn about some, some things about Chabad and Lubavitch that you didn't know. We can do it off-camera, but on-camera I'm going to skip to the topic. Rabbi Yosef Yitzchak Shnerzad writes in Yiddish, so I've got translate it translated to Hebrew. Thank you to the Chabad article. There's a famous story. That one came, Once somebody came with his son-in-law, Lamdan Gadol, who was a very big Torah scholar. He came to Lyozna, where the first Lubavitch Rebbe, the author of the Tanya, was. And he complained that his son-in-law, who was always acting in the path of holiness, he started having crises of faith. He started bringing up questions that people didn't have. They say that whenever you learn Torah, I'm sure that someone's heard this Machabla before. Don't bring up these questions because people didn't used to have these questions, and now you made these questions. It's a, it's an interesting mentality to have. So he started having questions about his emunah. even my son-in-law, he's in pain because of the doubts of emunah that he has. You know, by the chasidim, doubt is like the, the enemy of everything. You can't question anything. Everything is, is, uh, needs to be clear and full of faith. Amar harabi, the first Lubavitcher Rebbe said, Shehu, that he, the son-in-law, nichshal beloyodim It must be that he unintentionally consumed milk from go'in. tikun, and he gave him a tikkun, how to fix this. And his spirituality became healthy all over again. So here you have a man who's a Torah scholar, who's asking questions in Emunah. And the questions in Emunah are not prompted, God forbid, by his learning of Torah, and therefore there are questions that come up. But his questions in Torah are prompted by some unknown thing which is causing him sound. And the first Lubavitch Rebbe, the Alta Rebbe of Haman, he knows exactly why. Because he must have inadvertently consumed milk that was milked by a non-Jew and that's why and as long as he, now he'll do a tikkun take my prescription he did a tikkun and all of his sebekot went away now he's fine now for you that might seem like a chassidic story but if you're a chassid, this is this is
0: this is a big deal in source 2 the Lubavitcher Rebbe Rabbi Menachem Mendel in the last one was asked about a young Avrech and he
2: says Hine that which I told him about the milk of non-Jews. Based on the story from my father-in-law, that's source one. The milk of non-Jews they awaken inside of you doubts in your faith in God. That's what I told him. And if in all the generations you had to stay away from non-Jewish milk, because it's always dangerous to have doubts in Hashem. Kama V'chama, how much more so? the young American youth, who must and especially those who learn in public schools, God forbid. You have to make sure that they drink only kasher milk because they're even more vulnerable to emunah, and you don't want to exacerbate the situation because of the milk which they drink. Nobody promised you something rational. We promised you, though, that this is what the Hasidim are concerned of. You can tell me it's okay in halakha, and you can tell me that the p'chadash, the you can tell me what you want. But it doesn't matter. You want me to have doubts in the Qadosh Baruch You want my children to not believe in a Qadosh Baruch I would never do that. I would pay ten times the price of milk to buy halal milk. And so perhaps I could pause here and take you through where exactly is this idea of tum of dulling of the heart, or disconnection with the kadosh bakhu as it relates to the kashel food come from. The earlier sources that I found for this is the Ramban, Rabbi Moshe ben Achman. And this should not surprise you. The Ramban tells us in the bold, Lehodia, this teaches you, She'im yibadel adam that if a person stays away from the bad foods, meaning those that are not kasher, it's talking about parashat tazriyat. Your children will come out to be holy and pure and good. But if you indulge in non kosher food, that, I'm not going to translate literally, that baby that came from you and your wife, that was sustained by the non kosher food that you ate, will come out to be a bad child with all kinds of terrible things because they were nurtured from bad, from non-kasher food. And I will tell you that the blood that is born into your child comes from the food that you eat. And the, the sperm of a man, the child of a man, comes from the food that he eats. Therefore, your child is directly influenced by the food that you eat. Then if you eat non-kasher food, the children that will come out, Moor, will have it now this is fine, the Ramban is explaining something, to this is the way he sees it, and this idea that what you do affects the spirituality of your future generations, is why the Ramban is trying to tell you, don't eat food that is not kasher, so far he's not talking about milk, the food is not kasher, in source 4, on page 13, he quotes from Shalad Gilgulim. Shalad Gilgulim was remember, yeah. by the Khaibitan, Sunnah of the Arizan. And he says, The reason why the pious people are so careful to always be strict in Halakha, never to be lenient. Even though, according to Halakha, it's permissible. Because when the spirits go up, they're very particular with righteous people. And every person in heaven, they're more particular with them based on how great they are. Something amazing. Based on Loriana Kamala. And that is that if you see somebody who always likes leniency in Harakham, I don't know where to hide. I'm going to hide. His neshama must come from a very inferior place, a very low place. But someone whose neshama comes from a very lofty place, and they're always striving towards kumrot.
0: Now you understand, but I answered you everything now. This is the reason. I have a book. I have it here. I got it in my library. I don't remember
2: how I got it in my library. I don't know who wrote it. I never met him. He's one, a contemporary rabbi who's still alive in Israel. I take no responsibility for anything else he said, aside from this piece here. He wrote a book called Hamedet, which is on the laws of non-kosher uh, of uh, bread and foods and milk that were from Goyim. And he writes something fascinating in the introduction. This introduction has a haskama, by the way, from Rabbi Bani Shalom. And he sticks his head in here in this Kabbalistic conversation and he says the following. And as the taught us, accept the truth from whoever says it, even if you don't know who he is. The Bidnish Chai complained that the Ashkenazi rabbis were very careful only to learn Early sources, classic sources. And they neglected not just the contemporaries of their generation, they neglected any Achaonim. They didn't care. And he said the Sefa because they were humble, he calls it humility, they learned not only from the but they learned even from rabbis that were contemporaries of theirs to make sure that they were accurate, they brought all of their opinions in our And so hopefully I'm giving the B'nishchai some Achaonim. He writes in source 5, I will end with the source today. Ve'im sh'ani afa. Even though I am dust, and I'm not sitting here worthy at all, and I know how lowly that I am, I will not hold back. I'll tell you the truth. Should I fear a new dati that, in my opinion, all of these words, they're talking about things that are actually what causes bad spirituality, things that are really prohibited. Things that are forbidden, non, uh, non-kashar animals, and so on. But areas in Halakha, which the poskim argue, Maran says they're fine, or in other ways they're permissible, there are other reasons to permit them. That those foods when we drink milk, that it is now mutal, it's not a violation of Halakha. It's mutar in halacha. We wouldn't, the Ramban wouldn't say that that makes you have some type of suffering in your soul. Hadavar barush and makom nakshivu Anything which our Rabbis permitted for us through the rules of halacha cannot be considered something which would have a negative effect on us. meduyak ramban And that's why the Ramban is very particular when he says the bad foods. U'v'adai d'varim shemutarim min hadin. And certainly things that are permissible according to Halakha. Even though there's an argument among the Puskim, page 14. The Ramban wouldn't call them evil foods. How dare you tell other that the food that they're eating are Raiim. So one, it doesn't apply. The Ramban, the HaKadosh, the all of those who talk about these spiritual consequences. That's about not kasher food, according to the Kabbalists. But food that is kasher, according to the rules of Halakha, they would never tell you that because you're relying on the Shulchan Aruch, you ruling the Rambam, that food is going to make you have some spiritual consequence. And this is one more thing. Ve'ilu min ha'dam midat if the Jewish people were keeping chalav Israel out of chassidut, piety, extra levels of stringency, hecharashi, I would be quiet. I, our eyes I see in this generation. That they think that this is the absolute halakha. Even the rabbis tell people this is the halakha. And the rabbis in our generation like to put out halakhic books and everything is prohibited. You don't have to read the book. You know, everything is prohibited. Nothing is allowed. That's the style of the of our generation. Especially the things that you see that people think are not allowed. If you look in the actual halakha, the source, Says the same thing most of the time when you see Jewish people not eating something, not doing something, when you dig into the origins, you should see that it's permissible. And either the reason why they're stringent is because they don't know how to learn halakha, one, or because they're too afraid to make the halakhic decision. Uh, Peretz once told me that most of the khatamim we're familiar with are too afraid to rule in halakhot. So because of that, they're
0: always being strict. But that's not considered being strict. Uh, that's a conversation for a different shiul. I wrote about it in my book. And then he says here, He mentions here about Rabbi Vali says that his style is to always be lenient. And because of that,
2: he was making the Chachamim happy and so on and so forth. That's, you can read that already on your own. But I wish to summarize my shiul right now. And that is that the milk that Chachamim prohibited is not the milk that we have in our stores. One, because the milk we know is kasher, because we have supervision of the government, because there's no reason financially that they would mix it for us, because there is no non-kasher milk floating around. So on and so on and so forth. All of this is mutar, muta,
0: mutar. Mutarim lachem, mutarim lachem, mutarim lachem. But I'll add one more thing. Three years ago, I went to visit, no,
2: not even three years ago, two years ago, right before COVID. In January of that year, I was in Israel. And I sat with Moriah arab Yaakov Ferris, my wife was with me. And, uh, you know, I, I hadn't seen her in a year. I sat down, I said, I'm quoting if you're familiar with that story, I have uh, Rambam with maybe 69, 70, 71, to talk about this. What's, what's new learned in the Bed of Minash today? Rabbi, I haven't seen you in a year. I want to hear a new harakha from you. And he said, what can I tell you? He said, you don't have to keep Chalav Israel. So I said, and I told her, um, thank you. I don't keep Chalav Israel. It's is good. I said, no, I asked you for a I mean, Already, it's been 10 years or 11 years, I already learned the halachah you. So what's new? What's new today? He said, ah, what's new? That's a good question. So let me tell you what's new. So what's new is that I always tell people they can drink milk from Goyim, always. He said, but I used to say, if somebody was strict about it, then in Shamaim, they would reward them after
0: 120 years.
2: If they, after 120 years, a Baruch would help do that. He says, now, the conclusion that I've reached as after 120 years, they're going to get no extra points in Shammai. Not only that, they might even they give them din chizbon, that they wasted their children's money or their wives' money or their husbands' money buying things they don't need to buy. So That's the Chidus of the Pentatech. And with that, I summarized my entire Shihu. And I think there's nothing left to say. Uh, there's nothing more that I can add to that story. And a Hashem, HaKadosh B'chul should guide us on the path of truth. The things that we bring into us are all Terolim and Mutarim. And we don't have to be afraid. To follow the rules of Halakha as they were given to us by Moshe Rabbeinu on Sinai, and understood our chachamim until the chachamim of our generation as well. Thank you so much for learning with me today, and God willing, I look to see you uh, next week. I have some time we'll ahead. If anyone needs to ask some questions or wants to ask some questions, um, I'm willing to stick around. Uh, I do have to leave eventually, but I'll let you know when.
1: Sure. Yeah, thank you so much, Racham. That was brilliant, and uh, also not even the Shira itself, but also just the curation of the sources is uh, just incredible. Um, So we are going to take